Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Fancy Scientist podcast. This episode is a continuation of previous episodes on my dissertation research on African forest elephants. This one is one of the juiciest, if not the juiciest. Today, I am going to continue to tell you about my fieldwork in Gabon in Lope National Park, share with you some of the cool animals I saw in addition to elephants, and stories about how I got up close, too up close, with some of my research subjects, the African forest elephants. Hi. I'm Dr. Stephanie Shuttler, a wildlife biologist who's learned throughout her career studying animals that science alone cannot save species. We need you. In the Fancy Scientist podcast, you'll learn about fun animals, conservation tips, and science advice, all while breaking stereotypes about what a scientist looks like. Let's get started. The last time we left off, we were talking about my field season in Lope National Park, Gabon. I was driving around the park looking for elephants, looking for elephant groups, identifying them, and then trying to get dung from them. I didn't go into detail about how I got dung from them or really why. We wanted the dung because it's a great source of non-invasive DNA. DNA comes from tissue or blood samples. In humans, you can get them from cheek swabs, basically anywhere you can get cells. And the more direct the source is, so if you have a blood sample or a tissue sample, the better your quality of DNA is. For elephants, it's really hard to get those samples without being invasive. So either um, tranquilizing them and getting a blood sample There potentially may be some ways to do some skin darts or something like that, but you're still taking like a little uh, chunk of tissue off of the elephant. So we love to use dung because it's a great source for non-invasively collecting DNA. The elephant poops and... It has no idea that you are, or maybe it is watching you, but for the most part, the elephant has no idea that you're collecting its dung and then using it for DNA in analyses later on. So I was looking for these groups, and then as I mentioned, a lot of these groups, I saw them at night, and of course, they stayed a long time. So I would have to go back the next morning with a field assistant to look for these dung samples. We wanted to make sure that these dung samples were from the elephants that we saw and also that they were fresh dung samples because in order for the DNA to to work in the analyses, it needs to be fresh. Non-invasive sources are not a high quality source of DNA. So it has to be fresh that increases your chances. The DNA in elephant dung actually comes from the sloughed off cells from their intestinal lining when they poop. 
I know that sounds gross, but it is just such a fantastic source for us researchers. We can actually study and estimate elephant population sizes without ever seeing them. That's that's the type of research that my advisor did. So now I went back and I was with my field assistant and we had to look for dung. Now elephants poop about 17 to 20 times a day. So my first impressions were going to be like, oh my gosh, I am going to get so many samples from these elephants. But when I went there to look, it was actually pretty shocking. I got, I'd say like two thirds of the time, maybe closer to three fourths of the time, there was no elephant dung there or very old elephant dung. I can tell fresh dung from elephant dung, although sometimes it can be hard in the forest, but you look at the at the dung and you look to see if it has a sheen around it, which sounds gross, um, but actually that sheen is a really great source of, of cells. It's a really great genetic source. And we also sometimes waft the dung sample. Yep, we do. Sometimes field assistants would take a stick and poke it in and then bring it up close to their nose and smell it to see if it was fresh. Because in the forest, the the trees protect the dung samples from the sun and also they block some of the direct rainfall. So dung that has actually been growing there for or left there for a long time can appear to be fresh. And also, like, like the way that it looks in the forest, sometimes it looks like the sheen is still there, but it'll actually have, like, mushrooms growing on it. So you know it's not fresh elephant dung. So I went with this field assistant, and we would look for the elephant dung. And a lot of people ask me, like, if field work is hard. And this was hard, even though I was not really hiking that much. We drove in a car to the spot where the elephants were, and then the elephants were usually in a savanna area, usually a swampy savanna area. And from the car, it looked like you could just like walk right in there and find the elephant dung. But once you descended from the vehicle, there were high savanna grasses. And when they are up next to an elephant, they don't look as tall, but then you realize that they're as tall as your shoulders. So you are walking through these thick savannas. And once you descend down into the swampy areas, especially the elephants, you know, they have big feet. So they make these big indentations and you have to be careful where you step because you are either going to get sucked into a mud a mud hole created by elephant feet or or you have to stand on the mounds in between which are also muddy but you can they can be wobbly so you can lose your balance so i ended up and the field assistants did this too you end up trying to to walk on these these muddy patches that are held together by grass and it's kind of hard to do it's really easy to twist your ankle so even though we're not walking far physically, it is pretty treacherous ground. And then we are in equatorial Africa. So the sun is just right above us and it gets sunny quickly. And some days, even though, like I said, we're not going that far, just descending in these savannas and looking for the dung samples. Now elephants create elephant trails. 
And some of these trails stick around for a long time. So if it's an area that elephants go to a lot, there's going to be a lot of old trails. And the field assistants could tell the old trails from the new trails. I don't, I still was really bad at doing this. And I sometimes, and especially in the beginning, I doubted them. I was like, well, maybe this is, there's going to be some dung samples at the end of this trail. Let's just look at it just in case. Every time they were right, there were no dung samples wherever I looked. So you ended up following all these trails, weaving in and out. And if there were several elephants there and several dung samples, it takes 10, 15 minutes to collect a dung sample. You could be in that savanna area for for an hour or so and quickly getting heat, heat exhausted. And that actually happened to me one time where I had to go back and lay down because I had heat exhaustion. So again, even though we weren't like having this like really treacherous field work, it is, it is hard. It's challenging. When we collected the dung samples, what I would do is take a a tiny amount of the dung from, and I would look for the, the sides that had that sheen over it. So that's how you could tell fresh dung from old dung is the fresher samples would have this sheen and we would take a little bit and put it in a tube and then we would also measure the bolus size. So elephants, as they get older, they get larger, their poops get larger too. We would therefore take a measuring tape and measure three different boluses and then take the average of that. And that would be, that would represent a rough approximation of their age. The uh, circumferences were divided into two different classes, young individuals and adult individuals. So that was how I collected the dung samples. It was super fun driving around the park. I got to see some really cool animals. From my first season, two really memorable moments were were seeing a yellow-back diker. Actually, there were two of them. They just crossed the road super fast. So these are, they're hooved mammals, they're ungulates. They, they kind of look like stocky deer. They're not they're not tall or thin. They're they're uh, chubbier, but they are not members of the deer family, Cervidae. They are members of Bovidae, which you probably recognize are is the cow family. So these two beautiful yellowback dikers cross the road, and then one day in the burned savannas. So. The uh, the park, the people at the park, the park managers, they authorized prescribed burns of the park because the savannas were originated from humans thousands of years ago. So the park has been ta- maintained them and certain species like African forest buffalo need those savannas to survive. That's where they get a lot of their main vegetation from for their diet. So... So we were in this burned area and I got to see two, actually no, it was a troop, but I saw two really well, a troop of chimpanzees cross the road. That was super duper cool. I've never seen a chimpanzee before. So that was just such an exciting moment. I only saw chimpanzees one other time before and 
that was when I was rounding a corner in the car and there were like these black mounds on the hillside. And at first I actually thought they were buffalo. They were so large, but I knew the shape wasn't right. And obviously they weren't big enough. And that ended up being chimpanzees. I didn't get as good of a view of them as I did when they crossed the road, but still it is always amazing to see chimpanzees or any animal like a chimpanzee. I also saw some other another cool animal, but I'm going to save that for next time. One of the coolest animal experiences I've ever had. I want to tell you more about my experiences with elephants today. I just wanted to shortly mention before we get into elephant research that I was able to participate in some of the prescribed burns in Lope. And when you are growing up, you have this impression that fires start so easily in the forest. And it does in some areas of the world. I'm not discrediting that. But in Lope... At night, towards towards dusk, it started to get humid, and we would like literally take matches and try to set the savannah on fire, and it just wouldn't work. <laughs> so we were we were just desperately trying to set these savannas on fire, and we failed and failed. Eventually, we got it, but um, it was also really cool to participate in the prescribed burning, which is really healthy to maintain those savannas, like I said, for important animal populations. Okay, so back to African forest elephant research. In addition to the observations, I wanted to see if the elephants were were relating to one another, so if they were they were closer physically to one another and if they're closer genetically to one another. And this is what would happen with African savanna elephants. I wanted to get some additional data to help corroborate what I thought I would be seeing with the observational data. And this would also give me some insight if the elephants were acting differently in the forest than they were in the savannas, and maybe also allow me to capture different individuals that I wasn't seeing in the savanna habitats. So the idea behind this part of the project was to to divide the park into sections and divide our team into our, our overall field assistant team into pairs and send pairs of individuals to each section to search. And we wanted to try to capture as, cover as much ground as possible in a short of time period as possible. So I allowed for one week periods because we didn't want the elephants to move around a lot. So technically elephants can move far distances pretty fast, but you know we can't work nonstop, we can't work through the night. So we did the best that we could. When I originally planned this, I was in my lab in my office at the University of Missouri. I had this map of Lope and it was naturally divided into one kilometer sections. So I was looking at these sections and planning, okay, Monday, we're going to do this. Tuesday, we're going to do this. Wednesday, we're going to do that. Then when I went to the field station and talked about my plans with the director, I quickly realized that nothing that I wanted to do could be done. The areas of the park that I wanted to go to, some of them would require a two-week camping trip just to get to one grid section. Because 
even though there's there's trails, they're elephant trails, and that part of the park was really remote, so those trails aren't really maintained by the staff at the field station. They're not part of the regular the regular trails that they use all the time. So this would have been quite an ende- endeavor. So I had to scale back a lot in terms of what I could do. Also, on top of that, so w- last time I advertised m- my episode, this this podcast episode, starting with my fieldwork, I talked about how if s- it's not science unless something goes wrong. So that was the first thing that went wrong. The next thing that went wrong is... The very first day, it started raining. Now, in a lot of other field work, you can work in the rain. And you might think I sound wimpy because we didn't work in the rain. But it was field station policy. You couldn't work in the rain. And the reason why is because it's dangerous. I talked in the past episode about how the field assistants rely on their smell and listening skills to see if elephants are nearby. So if they were walking through the forest and it was raining, they wouldn't be able to hear elephants and and therefore it's dangerous. So the first day it happened, I couldn't even work. We couldn't even work. The only thing we could do was drive around the park and I was lucky in that... I have this theory that elephants move more when it rains. I'm not sure if it's true or not. There were some days that seemed to confirm it and other days that didn't. But we drove around the park and it was like, boom, boom, boom. We kept getting fresh elephant dung. So actually, even though the first day was kind of a, a blip, it ended up producing some great data. In addition to the problems with the rain field assistants were sick or had something come up that they couldn't come to work. So I would make all these plans to send different teams to these different places. And then I would have one less person or sometimes two uh, fewer people show up and I had to rearrange everything. I had to reprioritize. And you have to go out in groups of two in low pay. You can't go out by yourself because it's too dangerous. And this rule was started because somebody did go out by themselves and they came across two buffalo that were fighting. The buffalo that lost was very angry and started attacking the field researcher. And she had to crawl her way back to the field station. She was that injured from it. So even though we had radio devices, we always had to go with another person. So this just really scaled back on what I could do. And just the expectations I had of collecting all of these dung samples across the park and covering the the park in a really even and full way, they quickly they click my my dreams or my expectations were quickly quickly reduced once we started. That being said, I was able to collect enough dung for the project. So at the end, I was pretty happy about my results. I was also happy to go back to working in the savannas. So most of the time that I was in Lope, I spent driving around looking for elephants and then walking with field assistants into the savannas to try to find dung. But 
for each time I went there, I did two sessions of this spatial genetic work where I where I tried to, with teams of field assistants, collect as many dung samples across the landscape. The reason why I looked forward to going back to the savannas is because one day we came across this really fresh dung sample. I was super excited to get such a great sample. So Edmund, my field assistant, and I, were, we stopped and I, I taught the field assistants how to collect or to how, how to take notes, how to take data notes. For my project specifically, they had been working there for a long time, so they're very well trained. And I was collecting the sample, I was measuring the, the dung size, and he looks at me and he's like, let's go, we gotta go. And I was, at first I thought he was kidding, but then I saw him like packing his stuff up fast. And he was like, put that in your bag. We got to go, go fast. And I didn't hear anything. I had no idea what was going on. I was like, okay. And he told me to run. So we were in this little area off the side to the trail. And then we went back on the main trail and I just started running after him. I don't even think I was that fast because I was kind of crouching. But then I heard it. I heard this thundering behind me, like for real, thundering. And it almost was like the ground was shaking. So I kept running. I never looked back. And then I heard this trumpeting that that echoed throughout the entire forest. I'll never forget what that sounded like. Everything was quiet except for that trumpeting. And it was so close to us. But I just kept running and running. (laughs) So eventually we ran out of the vicinity of this elephant. But we we were charged very badly by an elephant. I never saw it, but I knew it was really close. So ever since I had that experience in Lope National Park, I was scared of elephants. So I was the elephant researcher who was scared of elephants. And I felt really strange about this. I felt really embarrassed because honestly, I I kind of feared going back into the forested areas. I also had something happen to me, which is very strange. It never happened to anyone before in the history of the field station. So this field station had been in existence for 25 years when I was there. At night in the field station, we turn off the generator and um, therefore all of the electricity goes off and you're in these cabins. The cabins are are sturdy, but the walls are thin. They're very comfortable. They're, They're not very glamorous, but they're very comfortable. It's a nice field station. And One of the coolest things about staying at the field station was when the generator went off, the elephants would come out. And some nights, the moon was so bright that you could see them really well. It was just so amazing because it was like they didn't, most of the elephants avoided the camp, except for one elephant, Billy the elephant. He is the friendly elephant in the park, and he would actually visit the camp when people were in the park. In fact, I can remember a couple of times where I was in my room getting ready, and then 
all of a sudden, I saw Billy or heard Billy through my screen window, and he was just outside. And it's it's just amazing because you, just this screen is separating you and this elephant. You're just like literally a couple of feet, a couple of meters away from this elephant. So at night, elephants other than Billy would come out and we had these fruit trees near us in camp, these nuclear trees. And the elephants would pull the fruits down with their trunk put it in their mouth, and you could hear this big crunching sound as they ate. So I loved falling asleep listening to the elephants. Elephants were always on my mind. I actually even started dreaming about elephants. I had these dreams that elephants would come through my window. I slept underneath the window, and they would put their their legs through the window and like touch me with their trunk and their legs. The elephants actually visited our field station every night. This was an extremely cool experience. There was only one elephant, actually two, but the second one didn't really visit that much. There was only one elephant that would visit the field station during the day. And this is Billy the elephant. He's known for being friendly. He's a large male and he would come to the field station and forage on the fruiting trees there, the nuclear trees. And these elephants, they take the fruit off using their trunks and then they put it in their mouth and you can hear this like giant crunching sound. So sometimes I would be in my room and the way that the cabins are set up is it's all one room and then they are divided into sections and each of those is a room. I then my room was on the corner and sometimes I would be reading a book or doing some work on my computer and I would just hear Billy and the cabin just had these thin wooden walls and a screen a screen window so I would look out my window and I would be just feet or several meters away from Billy. It was really an amazing, amazing experience. And then at night when we were all asleep, honestly, right after we put the generator off, so all of the power was out and everyone was in their bed, the elephants would then start to come out. Again, because we had these really great fruiting trees, that's what would attract them. Some nights the moon was so bright that you could see them really well. And I, I'm sure they know they knew we were inside, but they didn't care. And it was just such an incredible experience to see animals that are that were so scared of us in the park. And of course, they're so majestic and beautiful to get that close to them. And just listen to the sounds that they make, especially with the generator off, because there's no background noise at all. Just such a truly incredible experience. So one night, there were some elephants acting differently. Normally, the elephants would wake me up, and you would hear the crunching of the fruits, and you would hear them breathing, and them just interacting with each other, bending the branches of the trees and stuff. But one night after we went to bed and turned off the generator, there we were I was we were I woke up, all of us woke up, but we didn't I didn't know this at the time, to like thrashing sounds. 
there were elephants, but they they weren't really like eating as much as they were like pulling the branches off of trees and shaking the trees, just making a lot of noise. So this struck me as unusual behavior. The elephants stuck around for hours and first they started to go around the central building, which was made up of a kitchen and a dining area. So I could hear them spending about an hour or more of their time around that building. And again, this wasn't extremely usual because animals are attracted to food. So for them to be near the kitchen or the laundry area or the garbage, all of that was in the same area. And they've definitely had elephants go through that stuff before. So that didn't strike me as unusual, but it did sound very aggressive. The elephants were all around that area and you could hear them going through the garbage. You could hear them pulling the clothes down. And at one point, you heard glass break. So this was unusual. I'd never heard glass break before when elephants visited. The elephants had taken their trunk or their, or their tusks and shoved it through the one of the windows in the kitchen, one of the only places that had glass windows, and it shattered. So now I was starting to be a little unsettled because I remember I just was charged from an elephant. So I kind of had this this experience where I was an elephant researcher, but I was starting to become afraid of elephants. And it's kind of funny. And at one point, I even talked to one researcher who had worked in the park for a really long time. And I was like, I'm kind of scared of the elephants here. And he was like, yep, that's normal. He's like about 50% of the people, they either, you know, get really excited by the charges and get a thrill out of it. And then 50% of the people are like scared out of their minds. So I was one of the people who was scared. Then the elephants started to come around our cabin. So this was a single unit, but it was divided into rooms. It had stairs, little stairs that led up to your room and a bathroom at the end. And you could hear the elephants circle around the cabin. You could hear them take their trunks and they were like feeling the walls up and down. It was almost like they were like looking for something or yeah, like like kind of like how you take your hand and feel around a wall. You could hear them like take their trunks and feel all over the walls. They spent a lot of time around the bathroom area and you could hear the sounds of like like pipes seemed to be breaking and they it sounded like they were tearing the shower curtain out. Just really loud and destructive behavior and they were starting to knock like shampoo bottles over and stuff. And then they started to come near my room. My bed is right below the window. I don't have glass. I have a screen and I have some wooden shutters or planks to to close it completely. And I heard again the elephants like using their trunks all the way up and down the wall. And at this point, I felt really close to them because all that separated me from these elephants is this thin wooden wall. And it was it just was getting really intense. The elephants just sounded intense. I got up from my bed. I didn't even have time to grab my flashlight. And I went to the other side of the room in complete darkness. And I heard the planks 
start to fall inside my room. The elephant had taken its trunk, punched through the screen, and was was pushing the planks in my room. I could not believe this was happening. I had had dreams about elephants touching me in my sleep, and now, literally, this is what was happening. The elephants were breaking into my room. So I was freaking out. I didn't know what to do. I thought there was another elephant on the other end of my room. And at one point I heard the elephant like, like honestly try to climb the stairs. You could hear the stairs, the stairs squeak. So I called out to another researcher who was in the room next to me. And I was like, they're coming in, they're coming in, they're coming in my room. I don't know what to do. What should I do? I was scared to leave my room because I didn't know where the elephants were. And it was a dark night. It wasn't a moonlit night. But I was also scared to stay put because there was an elephant definitely trying to come in my room. So from as best as I could hear, it sounded like there was no elephant in the front. So I quickly darted out of my room and and went along the the porch into the next door researcher's room. So we had heard stories that you can chase elephants away by banging pots and pans and stuff like that. So, but we didn't have anything like that in our room. And also these elephants sounded so aggressive that we thought that was gonna like maybe make them more upset. So we didn't know what to do. So what we did is he had candles so that we could see. So we lit a candle. And we were whispering to each other, and it all just kind of fell silent. The elephants just kind of stopped. And we were only whispering for like a couple of minutes, and we sat there still. And then all of a sudden, we heard a trumpet. We blew the candle out because it seemed like we made the elephants mad somehow. And then, like a minute or two later, the elephants left. I don't know what we did that scared them. Maybe they didn't realize there were humans in there and then they were like, oh crap, we just woke the humans up. But they left. So the next morning we looked around and there was so much destruction. There was glass shattered from the window. There was uh, the shower curtain on the ground. There were some of the the, the shower parts bent. The, the, the trash was all over. And of course, there were the wooden planks in my room. So from that point on, I was genuinely scared of elephants in this park. And to be honest, it was actually challenging for me in my research, especially when I was alone in the car. I had so much fun driving by myself looking for elephants. But now when I was alone, I I literally shook sometimes when I saw them. I can actually remember this one time I rounded a corner and there was a tree or there's some vegetation and there was an elephant that I couldn't see and I could hear it trumpet at me. And then I looked at my rear view mirror and it was charging behind my car. And it just freaked me out. And I called on my radio to the field station. I mean, nothing was wrong, but I was really freaked out by elephants at this point. So what could I do at this point? Well, 
I mean, I could have gone home, but like what would have happened to my PhD? I just stuck it out. I really just stuck it out. It was hard. It was really hard, honestly, but I did it. And a lot of people ask me the hard stuff about field work, and that was definitely one of the hard ones for me. But it's also just being at a field station for months on end with not that many people. I, at that time, I was a very social person, and it was very hard for me to be around just a couple of other people at a time for months on end, and especially in a country where French was the main language spoken. So by the end of my first field season, I did collect enough dunk samples. I had a successful field season, and I then visited Luongo National Park, which has some more interesting stories. Not any involving elephants, although Luongo is also notorious for having aggressive elephants. So I chose to work in the two parks that are notorious for having aggressive elephants. And there I tried to get some field work set up so I could do my second field season in that park. So I think I'm going to stop there today and... We'll continue on next time with my second field season and wrapping up what it was like working with non-invasive DNA. Before I go, I want to thank you so much for purchasing my book, Getting a Job in Wildlife Biology, What It's Like and What You Need to Know. It has more stories in it, similar to some of the stories I'm telling you here. If you've read it, some people have already read it and they're loving it. If you could write a review on Amazon for me, that would be fantastic because that's how other people can find the book. And I literally wrote this book for you guys. This is exactly what I wanted before I started this career because I just had to do it by trial and error, by asking tons and tons of people. I asked professors. I asked government employees. I asked seminar speakers when they came to visit. I asked everyone I knew in all of my internships that I had. I just asked everyone about their opinions. And there was a lot of great experiences or a lot of great lessons handed to me. But what I found is that this job market has changed so fast that a lot of the stuff that people told me no longer applied. So I really wrote this book based on my experience and the current job market. So if you haven't purchased it and you're thinking about a career in wildlife biology, this is definitely the book for you to have. I promise you it will be so helpful. Thanks again so much for listening. I hope you have a wonderful day. Be nice to animals and be nice to each other. Bye.